Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to episode seven of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, who are we talking with today? Well, as you know, Kelly, um, you got to sit down with one of my really good friends, uh, one of the funniest men that I know. Of course, he's not doing a comedy act on this show, but that's okay because he has a lot of great content as well. Um, He's Johnston Moore. He's with Home Forever. And um, he's really one of the leading voices in foster care. So what what were you able to kind of glean from him? Wow, we had such a filled conversation of just some really good things of just highlighting foster care, some of the issues around foster care, and also some of the myths that exist out there and and just touching on the fear that a lot of times surrounds uh, families when they think about foster care. And so hopefully we're able to um, calm those fears and just have a really honest conversation about what kids who are in foster care need. So it was a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, and I know you will. Johnston, it's great to have you here today. How are you doing? Doing all right. Good, good. good. I'm excited. I think that um, our listeners are really going to enjoy just hearing your story and all the work that you're doing for kids in in and around the U.S., especially uh, concerning foster care. So you did not start in foster or adoption work to begin with. You started actually in the film industry. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, um, I actually got a degree in film and uh, TV production back east and moved out to California in 1992 with my wife and uh, started working doing craft services of all, all things. That means I was setting up the snacks for the cast and crew on a show called Land of the Lost. And uh, my goal was to make it to, to, to work as a screenwriter. And uh, so I started working various production jobs and I had about a 13 year career in Hollywood and I got to do all kinds of different things from craft service to production assistant to production coordinating to associate producer to co-producer. And I did do some screenwriting as well. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It, it was it was it was fun working in Hollywood, but um, ultimately I don't think that's what my calling was. So what led you to foster and adoption work? Well, my wife and I actually had talked about um, adoption before we ever got married. I had a heart for at-risk kids that I had developed in the University of North Carolina. And uh, I one night when we were dating, I mentioned to her that I wanted to adopt some kids one day. And she said that she wanted to adopt as well. And so the original plan was we were going to adopt two kids and have two biological kids. And then uh, in 2000, we became certified as foster parents. I was still working in Hollywood. She was she had worked in Hollywood briefly and then she for a few years and then she was teaching at this time. And we uh, took in our first two boys and um, uh, ended up adopting them after close to three years in our home. And after that, um, continue to work in Hollywood for a couple of years. But uh, I realized at some point that that um, well, actually, I, I had back surgery. I worked on uh, a couple of seasons of an HBO series and I had back surgery. And in my time leading up to back surgery and recovering from back surgery, I started connecting with a lot of people who were doing foster care, adoption, orphan care ministry through the churches, parachurch ministries, things like that. And I realized that's really what my passion is. And that's and that's where I, I could see my future. And so I did not go back to Hollywood after recovering from back surgery. I just um, dedicated our family to be used by God to promote foster care, adoption, orphan care to the church. Had no idea what that, lo- that would look like at the time, but we've been doing that ever since. 
So when did you when did you start Home Forever? Well, started Home Forever officially in 2012, but um, I worked uh, for another ministry for several years before that. I joined staff with Hope for Orphans, which was part of Family Life at the time, and was on staff with them for several years. And then they asked me to move to Texas. I really didn't feel like God was calling my family to Texas at that time. Didn't didn't really uh, feel like that was a, a good time for our kids to be moving, you know, where they were in school and everything. And uh, and so I resigned from Hope for Orphans, continued to do some writing um, for them after that, but started talking to some other people around my church, started getting a lot of advice and counseling from pastors and elders and others. And they said, you know what, you're already doing this. Why don't you start something? And so um, we uh, connected with a, a guy named Eric Churchill, who had a background in international adoption. Um, and uh, we started talking and we we built the foundation for what became Home Forever. And we kicked off officially as a 501c3 underneath our church's nonprofit status in August of 2012. And we got our own uh, 501c3 status approved and we launched out on our own um, uh, last year. So we're now separate from the church, but our church still supports us in so many different ways. But that's that's how Home Forever got started. That's great. What what kind of what kind of initiatives have you taken on at Home Forever? Well, one of the things was we we started looking at like, okay, what is God already doing through our ministry? And and, and I mean, there are a lot of great ministries out there. A lot of a lot of great ministries doing wonderful things. And uh, and one of the things that that God seemed to gift me with is the ability to help recruit. And so, um, and, and I speak at conferences and help recruit and recruited a lot of families in the Southern California area to become foster adopt families. But there was more to it than just that. And and so we, um, we actually formed a, a, what's, what we have a call called a foster closet. And so we have a, a, a place set aside at a church where we have clothes, we have cribs, we have um, car seats, strollers, you name it. And then whenever a family takes in a child or a sibling set, uh, you know how it is in foster care. I mean, you could get a call at three o'clock to take in a couple of kids at four o'clock. And, and a lot of times these families don't have the things that they need. And so they're able to just come to the closet and just take whatever they need. It's all donation based and it's all free. And, and But we, we also open that up to uh, families who are taking in kids through safe families or biological families, maybe a kinship placement where maybe a grandmother takes in her grandkids and, and doesn't have some, you know, clothes or whatever for the kids. And so we're able to help out a lot of biological families as well. But those are a couple of things that we do. But one of the big areas we've gotten involved in that um, that a lot of ministries have stayed away from uh, is getting involved in, in uh, what I call justice issues and, and policy issues. We, When I read God's word, He's very, very clear. God is very, very clear in what uh, his expectations of his people are in relation to the fatherless, in, in relation to orphans. And I think, generally speaking, we we as in the, the Christian foster care move, ministry movement do pretty well with recruiting and we do pretty well with um, providing for tangible needs for kids and, and meeting their basic needs. But one area I think we're lacking is in the area of seeking justice for the kids, especially kids in foster care. Um God spends a lot of time, and there are a lot of verses uh, in the Old Testament related to justice for orphans. And so you'll see a little bit in Deuteronomy about providing for the basic needs of orphans, but you see a whole lot um, on uh, on seeking justice for these kids. And so that uh, Proverbs 31 8 has, has sort of become my mantra. It's uh, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And a lot of these kids in foster care, they're the forgotten kids, they have no voice. And uh, we need to be their voice. We need to not only provide them a home and provide them with their basic needs, but we need to be a voice to advocate for those kids as well. And so that's an area 
And, and so we, and we look at policy issues too. I mean, we believe that every child deserves, needs and deserves a permanent home. That's what God designed. God designed, designed kids to be raised in families. He doesn't want kids bouncing around foster home for years, foster homes for years. He wants kids in permanent situations. And so we really advocate for um, policy changes. If there are policies in place that are preventing kids from getting permanent homes, getting permanent families that, uh, that, um, that harm kids, kids that, that need stability, then, then we'll go after those. And we've been to Congress several times and I've spent a lot of time with uh, Los Angeles County DCFS trying to, you know, work with them on policy issues as well. And, and, uh, one of those policies in particular is the Indian Child Welfare Act, which we've gotten very, very involved with over the years. That's good to hear. I know that a lot of people only see it as families taking in children or foster children, but just to get to those those larger issues and the policies that influence uh, just the care of children is why do you think a lot of a lot of organizations don't take that on? Well, it's it's messy. Um, it's uh, it's it's easy. Well, and, and, and you know, I, I don't want to. I would say a lot of a lot of them don't do it because maybe that's not their calling. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that was initially. I, I certainly wouldn't have seen that on my radar a few years ago. I, I am one of these that I grew up with an older brother that beat me up all the time. The last thing I sought was conflict. You know, I just did not see conflict growing up. But then with our two sons, we got involved in a very, very difficult custody battle for them. And, and it involved the Indian Child Welfare Act. And we saw a lot of injustice. We saw the system that was designed and created to protect children, oftentimes harmed and traumatized the children more than their biological family did to begin with. And we said, you know, this is wrong. The system should be treating these kids better than it treats them. And uh, and and so we, um, when, when we emerged from, I mean, we were put in a position where we had to fight. I mean, these were our kids that God had placed. Psalm 68, 6 says God sets the lonely in families. He, he set those kids in our home and he wanted us to be a voice for them. So we became a voice for them and we met opposition. I mean, we met people who really did not like us and, and, and we're, I'm still not liked to this day by a lot of people for being so vocal about, um, about permanency and about, uh, being so vocal, uh, for, for adoption. And, um, but, but, I, but I believe that's, that's my calling. And, and so if that's my calling, then that's what I'm going to do. If there are other ministries whose calling is to get involved in, in simply meeting, you know, recruiting, recruiting, that's fine. That's their thing. But, but I, I, I hope that, um, more and more, and I've been speaking about it more at conferences. I'm hoping more and more that we as Christians need to really, when, when we look at the father was fatherless, when we look at kids in foster care, we need to do this as biblically as we possibly can, which means we can't ignore the justice issues. It means it needs to be a part of us, mm-hmm. uh, whether we believe that's our calling or not. We are called to seek justice for these kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we also need to recognize we will meet opposition when we do. Mm-hmm. What are some of the myths that you see surrounding foster care that are not actually the reality as you have seen it over the years? Oh, there are so many. I mean, one of the biggest myths focused on family talks about is that kids are in foster. Most kids are in foster care because of their own behavior. And it's not. I mean, that, yeah, there are kids that, that come into foster care that have behaviors and they're going to continue to have behaviors, but they were traumatized. I mean, if you're neglected, if you're abandoned, if you're abused, then you're going to have behaviors and stuff. But but they're not in foster care because of their behaviors. They're in, they're in foster care because their biological family failed to properly care for them. And that's what that's one of the biggest myths that people need to understand. Um, there are other myths. I mean, one, one of the myths is that, that it, it, I mean, you know, people talk about adoption. One of the things I always, uh, you know, well, we would adopt because, but, but it costs too much money. And 
that in any context bothers me. You know, I, I, I first foster care adoption is free unless you actually hire, have to hire an attorney and you, uh, you know, you get involved in a custody battle. Uh, it's free. It's essentially free. I mean, in L.A. County, it costs about $400 for the paperwork for an attorney to do it. But the county reimburses you that. So really, it's a wash. But mm-hmm. but even international adoption, which can cost, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars or more or um, private adoptions, which is, you know, w- which can be pretty expensive as well. It, it's not that it's too expensive. I really believe it's a matter of what are our priorities, because I, I did a, I, I did some research a couple of years ago. And the average adoption, you know, if you, if you look at average private or international adoptions being around $30,000, um, the average price of a new car that same year was $30,000. It actually had passed $30,000 in, I think it was 2014. And we sold over 14 million cars in America that year. And cars are not eternal. They're not made in the image of God. You know, they, they're going to run out. They're going to they're gonna last a few years and then you're going to replace it. But kids are eternal. Kids are made in the image of God. And uh, kids, and, and so, so if you compare new car versus a child and 14 million new cars and in the same year we have, you know, less than 10,000 international adoptions and we have, you know, less than, I don't know what the figure was for private. I think it was somewhere around 100, 150,000. It might've been less than that. But I mean, so it's not that it's too expensive. It's just that, that our, you know, it's what your priorities are. And I think that that's one of the things that I've noticed in the church. We oftentimes in the orphan care world, we, we really key on James 127, but we key on the first half of James 127, that pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. But the second half of it says to keep yourself, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think that the church has been polluted by the world. I mean, we've, we, we, our churches are full of people who, Pray to prayer at junior high camp at, at age 13, and we've got our fire insurance. We've got our ticket to heaven. We stick Jesus in our back pockets, and then we go out and we chase the American dream, you know, just like everybody else. But but we're not called to chase the American dream. You know, we're called to give ourselves, give our lives away for the sake of others, and, and we're called to take up our cross daily and follow him. And, and so I, I think that, but, but I think that we bought into what our culture tells us we need to value. And what we need to value is our own personal comfort, our own, you know, to, to seek a stress-free life, um, comfort and ease and, and the big retirement and all that kind of stuff. And if that's really what you're seeking, you're never going to get involved in foster care. You're not going to get involved in orphan care any more than maybe supporting, uh, you know, supporting somebody else's efforts. But, but I think that that's, I, I think that that's an area that the church is really, um, where the church is really struggling that, that if we really can get a handle on that second half, we'll do the first half well of James 127. What are some ways you're seeing the church get involved that is useful and helpful for either families or for children who are in the foster care system? Well, it's been awesome to see God work over the last 10, 12 years with the Christian Alliance for Orphans movement. I mean, more and more God is waking up his church in America to care for orphans in various ways. And we're seeing so many churches step out in faith and say, this is going to be a value of ours. And and there are a lot of churches that will start Orphans Ministries, and I'm, I'm going to make some enemies here, but or I'm going to step on some toes here. But I mean, there are a lot of great ministries that are helping churches start Orphans Ministries. And, I, and I've done that too, but I really would like to see the day where no church needs to start an orphan ministry because it's just part of who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just part of our DNA. I mean, we don't need a formal ministry if our church is already caring for orphans, but we're not there yet. So we do need formal orphans ministries, but, but there are some great, I mean, there are incredible churches all over the country that are getting involved in foster care adoption, foster care ministry, adoption ministry, orphan care ministry. 
And, um, and that can be anything from, you know, doing, uh, you know, having support groups for families or wrapping around adoptive families or raising up adoptive and foster families, providing for basic needs. Uh, I mean, there are just so many ways that churches can get involved, and they are. I mean, it's been incredible to watch. And uh, our church is one example. I mean, it really wasn't on our radar, our church's radar about 15 years ago. I mean, uh, and, and then with our two boys, I think God started to wake our church up as they saw what the you know what our boys went through when they when they were in the system. And our, our church really really rallied around us, and we watched the spirit just start moving in our church. And more and more families would step up and say, you know, what? we could do that, we could do that, we could do that, or we could support a family that does that, or we could be a safe family. And so we've seen an entire movement at our church, and that's part of why we birthed Home Forever out of there because it was just so natural. And, uh, and we've been involved in international orphan care as well at our church. But, um, but really, the foster care issue has been one that's just completely taken off in the last 10 years. And it's, and it's, been, it's, been, it's been allowing God to just work in people's lives and, just, and allowing his spirit to just start moving and bringing people to the church that already had, you know, had it on their radar. I mean, he would start bringing those people to our church. And, and, uh, and it's clearly, I mean, that's one of the things our church is known for now. Um, and, and there are many other churches that are like that. It's been pretty awesome to watch. I know in my work as a adoption social worker, I saw a lot of people who maybe don't step into adoption or especially foster cares because of fear mm-hmm. that they may have. And so what what are some of the just really honest, true sure. issues of foster care and why people are so afraid to step into that world? Well, a lot of people are afraid, you know, people are afraid of what it might do, you know, what, what impact might be to their, you know, to the kids they already have in their home. Um, and a lot of people are fearful of falling in love with a child and then giving that child up. And, and you know, it's funny when, when people say that, oh, I can never, I can never foster because I'll fall in love with a child. It's like, it's like you're judging me. Like I'm, you know, like I'm some jerk for doing it or something. But, but I mean, my feeling is like, you know, we're going to stand before Jesus one day and, and, you know, and he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats and we're not going to be separated based on our doctrine or what we believe about the rapture or based on the music, but we're going to, we're going to be separated based on how we treated the least of these. And, and I believe that we're going to be called, the, the church in America is going to be called to task for how we treated the kids in the, our local foster care systems. And, and, um, I mean, that eight year old kid that needs a home, that's Jesus, you know, and do we, do we say yes or no to that child? Do we say yes or no to Jesus? And, and, um, and, you know, all those reasons, all those fears that people have that sound valid when we're talking after church over a cup of coffee to other people that don't want to do it either. They're going to those those are going to fall away when we're standing before the creator of the universe. And we're, we're going to have to answer for that. Um, yes, it is hard. I mean, yeah, we fell in love with this little baby boy, but it was absolutely the right thing to do for somebody to take him into their home and to love him as best they could unconditionally. And to hand him off to his biological family when they were able to get the paperwork done and, and, and take him take him in. So um, I, I really think that we need to, first of all, understand that what our fears are. I mean, a lot of people don't even recognize them as fears, but we need to recognize them as fears, name them, deal with them, talk to others, talk to our pastors and pray. And and I think that, um, I mean, another fear we, you know, we hear is that... Uh, it is you know, I'm not sure I can ever love um, a child that I foster or adopt as I do my biological child. I, I don't have any biological children. It's been a choice, but there's no way I can love my kids more than I do. There's just no way. You know, I mean, it's just something God knits your hearts together and, and it's supernatural and you can't explain it. And, um, you know, I, I, I just uh, I mean, this weekend I brought my, my nine year old daughter with me. Um, 
And I mean, we've just had an absolute blast. I mean, there's no way I ever think, man, if, you know, if she were blood related to me, I'd really be having a good time. I mean, there's, there's just not even a thought. That's my daughter, you know, and um, and so that's another fear. But I mean, I think people do have a lot of fears. Uh, but I think when you when you hold them up in light of the gospel, I think that those fears uh, fade away. And, and, and one of the things I. I say to people, just just ask God, you know, I mean, un- learn what his word says about his expectations of his, his people and then just pray, God, how would you love? How would you have me love an orphan? You know, what does that look like? What how would you want to use my family in the lives of the fatherless? And then just be open to what he has and then trust him in that. But it's hard. I mean, it's this is not an easy road. Mm-hmm. You know, adoption, foster care. It's not an easy road, but it's also the road that we're called to. And and and. Um, and it is a road that, 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 you know, orphan caring for orphans is a road that all believers are followed are, are called to. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of how we're going to do it. Absolutely. You, you brought up a little bit just um, having to send, you know, a, a baby back to their biological family. What have you seen over the years, just issues that um, with the biological families and how you've had to work with, with them? And what's your opinion on, um, family preservation as far as foster care kids are concerned. Well, you know, one thing I would I want to say there too is, that, I mean, when you bring that up, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of even Christians say, you know, we when we take these kids in, you know, they're going to be our kids and we're not going to, you know, we're, we're going to keep biological family at arm's length. And, you know, I, and, and I was that, my wife and I were that way when we started out. But then we met our son's uh, uh, grandma, Sandy, their maternal grandmother. We fell in love with this lady absolutely fell in love with her and over the years god impressed us you know upon us that that we're we're to bring you know we're to bless others we're to bring shalom into others lives we're to bring you know god's kingdom to bear on others lives and it's not just the kids it's their biological family as well and so we have turned we we've gone from wanting to keep biological family at arm's length to embracing the biological family members of our kids and so we actually have really good relationships with a lot of the biological family members um, I think family president, I, I, I would, one thing that I've noticed is the, the foster care system, and I don't know if it's that way all over the U.S., but it seems to set up, at least in L.A. County where we are, it seems to set up foster parents and biological family as adversaries mm-hmm. competing for the kids' affection, competing for custody, competing, competing, competing. And I really feel like if we can get beyond that and we can embrace the birth family and they cannot be so afraid of us as the foster parents, then we can actually help kids get out of foster care more quickly because on the one hand, we can encourage a birth mom. We can uh, help her as she tries to reunify. And we might be the only champion she has because the social worker and others might not be very involved and they might uh, be discouraging to her. But we can encourage her and maybe she can reunify with her child more quickly. On the other hand, um, and we've seen this we've, we've seen this firsthand in our lives. We've actually had several of our children's biological parents sign away their rights so that we could adopt the kids. A lot of I think a lot of biological family members hang in there till the bitter end and they appeal and they appeal and they fight, fight, fight because they're so afraid they're never going to see their kid again. And we have a track record of allowing the biological parents and biological family members to still know the kids, even after the adoption. And that's caused a lot of our kids, biological family members to be able to say, you know what, you, you are giving them what I can't give them. And I want them to have that. And I want to still see them after the adoption. 
And so I'm not going to fight this thing. And so we've been able to adopt our kids very, very quickly in some cases. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as family preservation, I think, I think it's biblical. I mean, you know, if we, if we, and that's something that a lot of Christians, you know, fight too. And I'm like, why are we fighting this? I think if, you know, when, when, when our little boy was handed back to, you know, handed to his grandparents and his, his biological mother is getting, you know, getting her life together. I think heaven rejoices over that. I mean, you know, I mean, God is a God of, of reconciliation and, you know, and, and, um, and, and so if we can be used in the process to help a family become whole again, then that's something we need to celebrate is even though it may be painful for us. Yeah. Now, I think that sometimes the system bends over way too long and way too far for biological family members. I mean, there's some families that it's just not going to happen, but they give them chance after chance after chance. So I think if a kid, if a child can be reunified with biological family early and safely, fantastic. But once the child is attached, and start seeing the foster parents as mom and dad, I mean, truly seeing them as mom and dad and the other kids in the home as the sibling, then we need to really pay attention to that and say, you know what, the case plan might need to shift now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even if the biological family member jumps through the hoops that the judge wants them to jump through, we still need to really examine. It's like, what's going to be best for that child? I think the foster system, it seems to be, in some places, more concerned about the custodial rights of adults than about the best interests of the child. And those are two different issues. I mean, you can sit there and put on a dog and pony show for the judge and say, I deserve custody of that child, but that doesn't answer what's best for that child. And we really need to look at what's best for that child. Those are such hard questions. They are. Um, I know on your website, this kind of struck me, it says that over 26,000 kids age out of foster care each year and that within 18 months, 40 to 50 percent are homeless and their lives are marked by crime, lack of education, unemployment, imprisonment, addiction, and teen pregnancy. How can we come around these kids that have aged out to to be family to them when they don't have a permanent family. Yeah. One of the things that we need to do, and one of the things we don't mention in there is the number of kids that get trafficked. I mean, kids are getting trafficked out of group homes in incredible numbers. Uh, they're trafficked at an average age of 12 in, in LA County. Um, and, and about 60% of the kids that are um, girls arrested for underage prostitution down there a few years ago, they did a study, came out of group and came out of foster care. But one of the ways we can, we can, we need to, I mean, we've got this magic number 18 and, and sometimes 21 that we think everyone's an adult at 18 or 21. And, and it, you know, we, the, the foster system seems to be set up to maintain the kids' safety until they reach adulthood and then they turn them loose. You know, they don't really prepare them for life. These kids that are in group homes, it's really just maintenance. I mean, yeah, there are programs here and there, but but by and large, they're not preparing these kids for life. And that's why you see these terrible statistics. Churches can come alongside these kids and start. I mean, we, we our church adopted a group home. It was a level 14 group home, which is the highest level of care. These are kids cannot, that cannot make it in a regular family setting. And so we started having a, a, a team from our church that would go over there every Sunday night and just build into the lives of those kids. So they knew that somebody cared about them. And um, and even after one of the mentors moved to New York, he came back for Christmas a year or so later and he was hanging out with one of the kids. He brought one of the kids to church that had come out of that group home. And so they, they, these kids realize that there is somebody that does care about them, that, that, that uh, they do have value. Um, we can come alongside them as mentors. We can, we can, you know, yeah, there are all these programs that they can access, but they don't know how to access them. So we take them by the hand and we show them how to do life. You know, I, at 18, I came from a family that 
stable marriage. My parents have been married for, uh, it'll be 56 years this summer, but I didn't have a clue how to make it at age 18. If I'd been in 20, 30, 40 different foster homes, I mean, are you kidding me? And we, we expect these kids to make it, you know? And, um, I, I mean, it's, it's shocking that they don't do even worse than they do, you know? And, and, and so we can, we can build into their lives. We can show them their value and we can quit. We can stop like giving up on finding families for them at age 18. I mean, we have a, a couple in our church. Um, he's very involved in prison ministry and, and they're wonderful people. And um, I was talking to them a few years ago and, and, and Steve said, so John, you know, we used to foster a girl 25 years ago and we fostered her for about four years and she ended up leaving, aging out at 17. And, and, um, but, and I said, well, are you still in touch with her? And he said, yeah, we're still in touch with her. She's, she lives down the street. She's married now and she's got kids. Her kids consider us her grandparents, their grandparents. And I said, would you consider adopting her? And he looked at me like I was insane. Mm -hmm. And I said, adult adoption is relatively simple. You just, you don't need to terminate parental rights. You just need her to say yes. And so, um, they said, you know what, we'll pray about it. And, we'll, and they prayed about it. They talked to her about it and they ended up adopting her. I think she was 38 years old when they legally adopted yeah. her. And it, it was, just, I mean, but, but why? I mean, she's, it's, it made, and they said it just makes sense, you know, and, and she always considered them mom and dad, let's just make it official. So now she has that sense of belonging to a family that she really kind of had, but didn't have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways we can wrap around these kids, but we need to let them know that, that they are loved and they are valued and that they can make it, but they, they're going to need help. And, and a lot of these kids don't want help. They, they just want to get away from the system. But I think after they get out of the system and get on their own, I think that, that a lot of, that's when a lot of these kids, I think, figure out, you know what, I really do need some help navigating life. I talked to a woman who had aged out and she was married, had four kids and she was about 29 years old and she just started bawling and she just said, I still want a mommy. You know, I talked to another guy who um, he's nationally known. He's always interviewed whenever, you know, that they do a, a story on um, emancipated youth. This guy's done really, really well. But I mean, even he in his, you know, his 20s, 30s, he said, yeah, you know, I'd still like a mom. You know, I mean, and why shouldn't why should we stop looking for him? I think we, we need to we need to encourage the system to go back and find former foster families of some of these youth and say, you know what, would you consider giving them a permanent home now? And and you know, reconnecting them with some of the relationships that were important to them early on. Mm, that makes, that's some good points. I think you, you bring up, I don't think people really think about a lot, just kids who do age out without any permanent families who are coming out of these group homes. And, and you know, I know at 18, I sure was not ready to be on my own. Um, and, and I'm thankful for, for the parents that I had. Well, Johnston, what would be your, this will be our last question. What would you say is for that family who's thinking about fostering or, um, stepping into this world, what would be your advice that you would give them? Well, uh, anything that's holding them back, I would, I would recommend that they really get honest with themselves about it. Look at look, what is really holding them back. A lot of times um, it's, it's the men who hold back, who are holding back. Um, that's one of the things I've noticed, but, uh, and that's a whole other topic is, uh, you know, I, I've, I've often said that if, if Christian men took this issue as seriously as God and our wives did do, we, there'd be no kids waiting for adoptive mm-hmm. homes. But, but I mean, I would really have them, examine what's holding them back and then talk to other foster adopt families, talk to their pastor and then just go, go before God with those issues and just say, God, are you calling us to this? And if, if God says yes, then do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the bottom line. If this is what God is calling you to do, then do it. I mean, don't let fears hold you back. 
from what God has for you. And understand that that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I mean, my life was so much easier. I made a lot more money and had no enemies when I worked in Hollywood. You know, I'll be honest with you. But but I mean, that that's not the life that ultimately God had for me. And and, and it was great and everything. But um, but this is the life God had for me. And, and now I, I and I'm not working for, you know, I'm not doing this for any. Uh, you know, any personal glory for me, this is the wrong thing to do for personal glory. That's for sure. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm doing this because one day I'm going to stand before him and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that has to be enough, you know, and that is enough. And so that's why we continue to do this. Well, I'm going to ask you the the questions that we ask each of our guests when they come on is what is a book that you've read recently that has affected your thinking in the area of orphan or foster care? And also, who is the person that's most influenced you in uh, in the area of foster care? Okay, I guarantee no one's ever answered this for the book. Um, th- there have been some great books over the years that have influenced me, but but a book that's uh, that I'm actually reading right now, I'm not finished with, is called Culture of Fear, and it was written by a couple of ex. Um, actually, I think one is still there. Social workers with LA County who talk about the corruption in LA County, and I think it's been a really good reminder for me from insiders confirming the corruption and and the the mess that's, that goes on in the foster care system and encourages me to continue to fight for justice for those kids in LA County. We have the largest foster system in the country and and it's and, and it needs a lot of help. And, and so um that's one and the person who's influenced me the most um is probably my pastor. Uh we when we were fighting for um for our sons, we were at the point where we were told there's no way we're ever going to adopt these two kids. There's just no way. And uh, and yet we felt like, I mean, we were totally in love with these kids. The kids wanted to stay with us. They wanted us to adopt them. But we were told there's no way. And we went to our pastor and say, do we just stop? Do we just stop the fight? Let them go. You know, make the transition as easy as possible and as soon as possible for them if, if it's inevitable. And, and he made it very simple for us. He said, your job is to reveal the truth. And um, and that was one of the things we thought we had to win this battle, this custody this custody fight, but that was God's, Mm -hmm. you know, what we needed to do was continue to open our mouths and continue to speak the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And we saw the wall come down and God completely turned the case around. And, uh, and and it was miraculous to see all the way to the point where the judge said, um, when she ruled, she said, I don't know what the universe is telling is trying to tell me, but my head hurts. And, and it was like, well, that's not the universe speaking to you. But, but so, so our pastor's bit of advice there that our job was to reveal the truth and, and just the way he preaches on a regular basis about how, you know, about that. It reminds us that this is not about us helping a couple of kids. This is about what, what God is doing and building his kingdom. And that, that this is kingdom work. And this is about God's plan to renew all of creation, you know, and this, this is not about us just trying to help a couple of kids. Um, and so his, his, he's been very influential. And then two others, Kelly Rosati and Sharon Ford from Focus on the Family have just been fantastic. I love, um, I mean, Sharon just gets you. So I've heard her speak 30, 40 times and I get so hyped and excited every time I hear her speak. And Kelly Rosati has just been so wonderful because she's had a lot of struggles as an adoptive mom and she's so transparent and so honest about those struggles. And that gives me so much more freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times foster families feel like we need to be the perfect poster family for adoption. We and so cuz if we don't then no one will do it. You know, it's like no, you need to be real with people, <laughs> you know. It's not your job. Your job is to love that child unconditionally. It's not your job 
to to be the perfect poster, poster family. There is no perfect poster family for adoption. You need to be faithful to what God has called you to do, and that is to love that child unconditionally. Let the Holy Spirit work in people's lives. That's not your job. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I want our listeners to know that we're going to do a bonus episode to talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is kind of in our news right now, and you are the person we definitely want to hear from about that. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation that Johnston and I were able to have. I know that I learned a lot of things about foster care and just the issues surrounding it. So, Phil, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Yeah, well, it's it's similar to a lot of the other things. It's just it's a really a different topic. It's that there are so many things that we hear about all these things in orphan care, right? So whether it's adoption or deinstitutionalization or you name the issue, we hear so many things. Some of them are true. Um, some of them are true, but only for a tiny percentage. And I think that just even hearing from, from John about, um, foster care and what is really going on in the country, what is, are some of the really good things that come out of it? Some of the adoptions that come out of it, some of the reunification of family, some of the ability to actually, um, restore a child with his or her mom or dad after they've been able to be rehabilitated, rehabilitated, but it's not something that we guarantee can happen, nor is it something that necessarily we're going to always advocate for family reunification and family preservation. As John said, there are some times where it's just not going to happen. We don't like to hear that. That doesn't sound good. It doesn't feel good in the stomach. It doesn't feel good. It's not a feel good story all the time, but it's reality. Right. And there are some times that we just need to say the best thing for this child is another family, even though mom or dad is alive. That's not easy to swallow, but it's real and it's true. And I and I I we don't like that answer, but we need to live in that reality and say, okay, how can we best determine that? How can we best put people into those positions that we can trust and train up so it's not an assumption? Because the other side you can go to is too quickly say it won't work. And how do we get there? And those are some of the things I want to hear from people out there about, right? And I know there's some people listening. Um, there's some people, and I know, who, you know, you know who you are out there. And you're thinking to yourself, I just completely disagree with you, Phil. There's always a way to do it. I want to hear from you. I want to hear where you're coming from on that. And I want to hear some questions. I want to hear some, you know, some responses. I don't know if there's any answers to it that we're all going to agree on. That's going to be the magic bullet. I know that's not the case, but I do want to hear from you on it. So that's really what I gleaned from this. And the more I'm doing this work, the more I see that that is kind of how most of these issues come down, that we need to figure out what is the best situation for each child in this particular circumstance. Absolutely. And I know that that takes time and a lot of effort. And one of the things that Johnson started to hit on was the Indian Child Welfare Act. And because it is such a current topic, such a complex issue, we decided, we convinced him actually, to take a little bit extra time to just sit down with us again and, and explain it, um, the history of it, and to kind of give his opinion on it and his side of it. Um, and so that's going to be a bonus episode that you're going to be able to listen to as well. And we've actually aired that at the same time that we released this uh, podcast. And so you can you can download that right now. We're also going to be having uh, next week, we're going to be um, 
putting out there the interview I was able to do with Ruslan Malusha with World Without Orphans. And that uh, that's, a, that's a great one as well. So I just really encourage you to, to check out that conversation Kelly was able to have with John about uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. And I, I want to, again, invite you, if you know people on the other side of that issue, if you know people or you are one of those people who's just incensed by this and you're saying, I totally disagree with what he's saying, connect with us. We'd love to have you on the show as well to be able to give that side of it and to hear it um, from that and maybe hopefully even get you to talk with John as well and to get both of you on the show together. So until next time, uh, thanks for the download and we look forward to uh, engaging this conversation with you again. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.